and grace and mercy and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In the Old Testament, you see a pattern when a man became king. There's a pattern that you can find not just in the Old Testament, but in ancient Near East religions of how a man would become king. And there were three stages. It was called the kingly ascension. The first stage was that the king would be anointed by a prophet. The second stage was that he would have to prove himself by a feat of strength. And the third stage was the official coronation. So it's three basic steps to becoming a king. The first is that the man would be anointed and designated to be the future king, but not yet confirmed officially by the people. The second step was that man would be tested. He would have to prove himself. It was a way to demonstrate his ability as a leader or as a warrior. And then the third step was that he'd finally receive the official confirmation, confirming him as the new king. You see this in several places in the Old Testament, for instance, with David. At the time that David was anointed, he was not yet the king. Saul was king. But God had become displeased. In fact, it says that God regretted choosing Saul and turned to David. In 1 Samuel 16, the prophet, Samuel, goes to David, goes to his hometown, gathers his family, and out of the sons of Jesse, chooses David. He anoints him there as God's chosen one, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then David is to be the future king. But he's not yet recognized publicly by the people as king. So the second step then, right after that, in 1 Samuel 17, is David faces a great feat. He has to be challenged and tested And that testing begins with Goliath, where he has to show his strength as a warrior. Now, even after that, the testing continues. He doesn't get recognized by the people through many chapters and all the way into 2 Samuel, when Saul finally dies. So the three steps are there, the anointing by a prophet, then the testing, and then the confirmation in 2 Samuel where Judah and the tribes of Judah recognize David as their king. When you look at how the Gospel of Luke and the Gospels in general are laid out, they follow the same pattern in the life of Jesus. Jesus' ministry begins with an anointing. We back up then to his baptism, where a prophet, John the Baptist, anoints Jesus in the water, The Holy Spirit descends on him, endowing him with that blessing from God. And God says, this is my beloved son, the one I have chosen, the one in whom I'm pleased. So Jesus is chosen, but he's not yet crowned king. In fact, there are many chapters that follow where Jesus is not crowned king, but he's tested. The very next story is his temptation in the wilderness where Jesus has to show his strength as a warrior to be the future king and leader. 
But in his testing, Jesus proves what true strength is, not by how strong he is or how many miracles he can do, but instead by trusting, by his faith, his reliance on the word of God. As we come now to the text for Palm Sunday, you're anticipating that now is the time. In fact, at the beginning of the chapter, it says the people were thinking that now was the time when the kingdom was going to appear and Jesus was going to be crowned. He had the anointing, he had the testing, and now we read that he's going to Jerusalem. This is Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So I said before that this process, this three-stage ceremony, is called accession, which comes into the shortened word access. It means accessing the throne. It's sounds a lot like ascension, which is another royal term for ascending to the throne, going up to the throne. And in both of these terms, you have that sense of going toward something greater, going up, drawing near. And the word ascension means to be joined together, to arrive, to approach. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. In fact, Luke is several times Beginning at verse chapter 9, we looked at this at the beginning of Lent, where Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, all the way now to 19, where Jesus keeps on going, determined and focused, getting nearer and nearer. So Luke keeps referencing how he's drawing near. Verse 29, he drew near. So Jesus is coming up. This is part of a Palm Sunday procession that the pilgrims would recognize every year in preparation for Passover. Only now they're singing the Psalms, Psalm 118, in a new way. When they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118. 
And in Psalm 118, it doesn't say blessed is the king. The people are interpreting it. It says blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people would sing this psalm every year, going up to Jerusalem, right to the temple, where they would say, blessed are all of us who are coming in the name of the Lord. But now they say, blessed is the king. They're looking to Jesus as the king. They're thinking that this is now his coronation. It's his time to come into Jerusalem, to take the throne, and to be crowned. Every time we come to worship, we are coming to the king. We have those same words going through our mind and heart. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Our service begins with that same sense of praise and worship, along with the forgiveness of our sins. And we will sing the song of the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. At the beginning of Luke's gospel, you have the angels singing it. Now at the end of Luke's gospel, you have the people singing it. The angels said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace coming down and now the people from below are returning the words to God peace in heaven and glory in the highest peace in heaven peace on earth it's showing us how it's all fitting together everything has come just as God planned it and the king is approaching so our worship of God is centered in honoring the king, recognizing that he has come here to meet with us, that he has brought to us the fulfillment of everything the scriptures have laid out, that he's accomplished it all. And it's not Jerusalem and the throne in the palace where Jesus sits. It's at the right hand of the heavenly father, where even now he's visiting us. He's reaching out to our hearts and our minds by the power of his Holy Spirit, so that our lives would be filled with his praises, so that our lives would always be looking to the Palm Sunday events, the events of Holy Week, and saying, that is our King. It is so meaningful to us as his disciples that if we did not sing these praises today, the pews would cry out. The walls would cry out. The rocks around the building would cry out. If the people of earth would not recognize this in some way, God would cause all creation to cry out, showing who he is. But the stones don't cry out, not in that way. They cry out in another way, which we'll see in part two of our sermon. What are the stones crying What is Jesus crying to see what that means? Because although there is so much being revealed right here about Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king, there is so much that is remaining hidden. We'll continue our service with the responsive reading of these words from the Pilgrim Psalm, Psalm 118 followed by the next hymn. Let us rise for the responsive reading.
as we were anticipating the completion of the three steps becoming king, we've come to Jerusalem now with the honored king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord approaching the throne. And just when we expect that he's going to do one thing, he does a different thing. We've come to the king's inaugural address where he is going to tell all the people what this means, what his plans are, and what does he do? He cries. When Jesus told the Pharisees that the very stones would cry out, it alludes back to a prophecy by Habakkuk. In Habakkuk chapter 2, there is a long lament, uh, woes, one after another, that God is pronouncing on the nation of the Chaldeans, Babylon. And in verse 11, it says, uh, verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Habakkuk is talking about the city of Jerusalem itself crying out in agony about what's happening. The very stones of the walls crying out because of what's happening to the people. And Habakkuk himself is crying out. He calls to God, how long? Will this suffering continue? Because God has brought in a foreign nation to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and the Babylonians will take off the Israelites into captivity. And God says, here is my answer. Behold, the proud is puffed up. His soul is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. God's answer is to tell the people and Habakkuk to live by faith, not by sight. Which means that there are events unfolding at Jesus' time that no one understands. That although they're singing his honored praises, they don't understand what all of this is going to mean. Instead, they're going to be very confused. Habakkuk says that the very stones are going to cry out because of the trouble that's coming upon Israel. Only now, Jesus is talking about the same trouble, the same lament that the prophets had over Jerusalem hundreds of years before this. And now Jesus is a prophet doing the same thing yet again. He's weeping because they don't understand. And so he says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade, around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
So the stones do cry out when the city is torn down because the people are not understanding the significance of Jesus' teaching and what this means for the city. They don't understand what is being done to make for peace. And Jesus cries. But what did they see? Now, the reference to visitation, the day of visitation, has come up in Luke earlier. And in the very beginning, the song of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, said that the day of visitation has come and God has sent redemption to his people. Visitation is a key word in the Bible. It's a word that dates back all the way to the Exodus. And in the Exodus, that word has a special meaning to it. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is visiting God at the burning bush. And God is telling Moses what the message will be for the people. And what Moses is to say to the people And he says in verse 16, Go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. So this Bible translates it as observed. But the Hebrew word is pakad, which means a visitation. And a visitation has a special meaning to it. It is something that would apply to a king. When a king would come and visit his people, it would be so that he could do something for them. Sometimes it was used to speak of a royal inspection where the king would send his advisor to inspect his people and the leadership and make sure everything's in order and that they're conducting their business as they're supposed to. It also applies when a king would respond when things are out of order and he would visit his people by answering the problems and setting things back the way they're supposed to. It's an official term. It's, in fact, the term that we still use today when we say that we have a conference visitor. It comes from this visitation of someone who watches over the people, inspects what's going on, and when is needed, steps in to set things right. In chapter 2 of Exodus, it says, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant God saw the people, and God knew their sufferings. That's God's visitation. He personally comes down from his throne to look into what's going on in the lives of his people. He inspects what the leadership is doing. He looks at the suffering of the people, and he responds as a king should. He takes action. He visits his people. But Jesus says, you didn't know the day of visitation. You didn't know that the king had come to inspect you. You didn't know what he was actually saying about your leadership 
and you didn't realize the way that he was going to set it right. Jesus, by using this term, is bringing to mind what God did for the Israelites when he brought them out of slavery. If you had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And because of this, the city will be destroyed. This is what Habakkuk laments. This is what Jeremiah laments in the prophets when Jeremiah writes the whole book of Lamentations. And so we call him the weeping prophet. Well, Jesus is another in a long lines, but now the greatest prophet of all, weeping like Jeremiah over the city the first time it fell, now knowing the city is going to fall again because they crucified the Lord. But these things are hidden from your eyes. What are we seeing on Palm Sunday? So yes, how great is it to start the service with praises, with the kids coming up and putting the palm branches on the altar, singing about the wonderful things God has done. But when we leave, and when we observe Holy Week, and the events that follow, what are we seeing? What are you seeing and observing happening in your life? Where is God inspecting you? Where is God speaking to the leadership in the church, in the nation, in our own personal lives and workplaces and homes? And what is God saying about it? What is he doing about it? Because sometimes we get the wrong expectations about what the king has come to do. And as we trace the three steps and we look for the king to come and set things right, to be crowned king and finally drive out the oppressor and just make peace, to go to battle, maybe he's not doing what you expected him to do. And if we don't have our eyes opened, if we don't become like the Emmaus disciples who finally, when Jesus sits down to a meal with them, can see what it's all about, then we might miss it. The Pharisees, the leadership, they were missing it. The day of visitation. But that's the amazing part of it all is that just when we think the king is going to be crowned, well, he is. Only his crown is made of thorns. And the enthronement ceremony is on a cross. And the people, instead of honoring him, are mocking him. So we head into Holy Week to observe with hearts that love our Lord, his enthronement ceremony. And it's through death that he becomes king. It's through rejection that he fulfills what God has promised to do. And it's all of this is because he's come to bear our sins. He's come to inspect every little corner of our lives, to find no stone uncovered, to cry out and lament at all the things that we've done, to offend him and others, and all the things that have been done against us. He sees it all. And he takes it on himself into Jerusalem to make true peace by laying down his life 
for all of that evil and delivering us in his resurrection to life. To a life that's hidden now from the eyes of so many, but that your eyes can see so that you can honor this king. You can honor him in your hearts every day, even when things are not working out the way you anticipated, knowing in the end God is always making good on what he said he's going to do, to visit his people and to redeem them. Amen.